Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are talking about dependent types for practical programming. So, you know, we could study dependent types from different angles, and here we're talking, we're really looking at sort of like, how do you use dependent types in programming? And mostly we're using them to increase our, um, the kind of, get our more statically, uh, statically check more properties of our programs to try to rule out bugs. And so, and the nice thing, really great thing about dependent types, in my opinion, is that they're, they're I mean, you know, there's a kind of a sliding scale where if you put some more effort in, you can check some more stuff. And, and it's kind of incremental. I mean, this is not, obviously not 100% true. I mean, there, there's sort of discontinuities in your sort of, uh, you know, program verification effort space. You know, you may go along for a while and putting a little bit of effort and you're getting a little bit more static properties checked. And at some point, to check that next one, <laughs> it's going to take a lot more engineering because it, it really is a property that, you know, depends more heavily on more of your code or something like this. So, uh, of course, you can have properties whose correctness requires real, you know, serious mathematics to show. Uh, but for most mainstream programming, we're, we're not talking about stuff that needs super deep math to, to verify. It's, but we need some way to, you know, to phrase properties and, and uh, prove them or have them be checked at compile time. So anyway, that's mostly what we're talking about here in Chapter 4 of the Iowa Type Theory Commute. And we've been talking about indexed types. And I've, I've said, I kind of emphasized at some point that I think, personally think that you can get a lot of mileage out of index types. At some point, it's not going to be quite enough for what you want to do. But it, it can really, you know, go a, go a ways. And I, I have to suspect that probably... You know, this this design space for dependent type programming languages is really, um, it's big and complex, lots of different language design decisions you could make. And I bet you that people haven't really explored as much as they could this idea of index types because everybody's kind of, oh, you know, like pile on to full power, the power of full dependent types. And I'm not saying that's bad because actually it's nice to have a more powerful yet simpler language design. I'm definitely a believer in that uh, rather than something that, is less powerful, but can end up having more kind of funny hooks and bobs and and weird little bits to it. Uh, so, which is certainly the case for Haskell's type system as it led up to dependent types. And one of the motivations for trying to add dependent types to Haskell is just that Haskell's type system has so many weird little complicated, tricky things that you can do, uh, and they're all kind of somewhat independently developed. As I understand, they they. They're coherent, ultimately coherent, because Haskell translates everything down to a core language, a type, statically typed core language. So it all kind of makes sense together because it's all justified by compilation to core. But but still, as, as a user, the features are kind of, there's several different ways to do certain things and this kind of thing. I, I myself am not that advanced of a Haskell programmer, even though I'm going to teach much less advanced Haskell programming to undergraduates starting next week here at the University of Iowa. Uh, but anyways, so, but talking about the kind of uh, benefits that you can get from dependently typed programming, uh, we've already been talking about data structures like vector. Okay, now, we've probably all had a little bit of enough of vector for now. Uh, and But there are other ones, other kinds of data types you can do. And vector, 
with you can um, show some static properties of using dependent types or or index types for that matter. <clears throat> and vector is kind of a sort of interesting case on the interesting because it's not really taking advantage of the full power you have because the vector type doesn't really rule out any of the sort of underlying erased lists, right? You can, any list you want, just think of any old finite list you have, you can make a vector that has, you know, the length of that list that will be, you know, the sort of corresponding vector version of the list. So you want to do one, two, three, four, five as a list. That's fine. You can do one, two, three, four, five as a vector. It'll be a vector of nats or whatever of length five. That's fine. But there are some uses of indexed data types where the indices actually rule out certain patterns of constructors that you can't, you can't make data a certain way if, if it's going to type check. You know, whereas again, with vector, any data you want, any underlying list that you want, you can turn into a vector with some vector type. Well, for some other indexed data types, the typing, they're, they're sort of underlying, not statically checked data structures that don't have any type at all with the index type. And example, I could think of several examples of these. Um, one of them, I mean, well, let's say, I mean, there's, there's abundant examples. And one that you could think of is statically verified binary search trees, where the idea is that you want to use static typing of the binary search tree data type to make sure that the binary search tree property is satisfied. And the, the property, of course, as you recall from, you know, undergrad algorithms class or whatever, is that anywhere you go in this binary tree, if you go left of a node, so that this stores data at the nodes, and we have empty leaves. So uh, any node you're at that's got some piece of data D, if you go left, all the data you find is going to be less than or equal to D in some ordering that you have. For simplicity, let's just think that we're working with natural numbers or integers or something. And so when you go left, all the, you know, you've, you've got a node that has 35, then all the data to the left of that node in the left subtree has got to be less than or equal to 35. And then if you go right, all the data has to be greater than 35. Okay. Now we can actually statically enforce this pretty easily with um, dependent or again, almost certainly indexed types as well. Uh, and how do you do it? Well, one thing you can do, and there's a couple possibilities here, and the one I've used in the Iowa Agda library is that you have a binary search tree data type where the, the, the type tells you lower and upper bounds on the data in the tree. Okay, so if you have something, if you have a piece of data of type BST, you know, three, a hundred, that means you've got a binary search tree where all the data in there is between three and a hundred. Okay. Now, once you set the, a type up like that, now how can you statically verify the binary search tree property? It's actually pretty easy when, let's see. So I kind of forget the leaf case. Uh, I think the leaf, you just say any lower and upper bounds you want, as long as the lower bound is less than or equal to the upper bound, you can have a leaf with uh, that lower and upper bound, okay? The interesting case is for a node, when you're actually building a node with some data from left and right subtrees, 
you you want to say, all right, if you're trying to build a node with data D and left and right subtrees, well, now all you have to say is kind of the relationship of the lower and upper bounds of the subtrees to the lower and upper bound of the, the new node, the tree built with the new node that you're, you're adding. So you want to say, okay, if the node is going to have data D, then the left subtree can have lower and upper bounds, whatever you want, but the upper bound should be less than or equal to D. And the right subtree can have lower and upper bounds, whatever you want, except that the lower bound needs to be strictly greater than the data D. Um, and then once you've done that, now we know what the lower and upper bounds are for the new tree. They are just the lower bound of the left and the upper bound of the right. And so once you set that up, it's now impossible. You can't construct a tree that is not a legal binary search tree. You've sort of um, imposed that property statically just in the definition of the constructors of the data type. And that's pretty nice. So you don't, you know, you don't have to, you basically have folded this binary search tree property into the very definition of the data. And so if you're writing functions, you don't have to say things like, well, I take in a sort of plain old vanilla, not statically verified binary search tree, plus a proof that it has the binary search tree property. You don't have to write code like that or write theorems like that. You just say, I take in a binary search tree. And these binary search trees, by their very definition of the type, have to satisfy the binary search tree property. So that's an example of using type indices. And I'm just sort of trying to remember. I'd have to go look at my library code there to remember. Do you, could you just do that with indices? I think you probably could. You know, the only really place where indices run aground is if you actually need to to, if your program needs to look at the indices and compute with them somehow. But for this, you're just sort of keeping track of the indices and sort of passing them around, sticking them in the, with the constructors here and there. And uh, so I don't think you need them to um, be program values. They could be from some in other index domain. And by the way, I, we should emphasize that the index domain, these expressions are from the index domain are all erased. I think I said that at some point. Haskell is going to erase them all, for example. Uh, because in Haskell, they're actually just types of some funny data kind. So, uh, yeah, so I'm pretty sure that these binary search tree, the, the usual binary search tree operations you would probably want to write, would that you could just use indices for those that don't need to have full dependent types. So, um, anyway, that's one example, and we can talk about some more examples and some other use cases for dependent types in our next episode. Thank you very much for listening.